welcome to Double A with Adam and Alex. This week, we discuss Rachel Pollock's run on Doom Patrol. Um, unfortunately, the news that she had passed away came out on April 7th, uh, prior to this episode coming out on April 10th. And um, after we had recorded this episode the week prior, um, so uh, we unfortunately do not uh, or cannot possibly address that during this episode. Um, this first part um, is also going to be primarily setting up the scene for Pollock's run. Um, so we primarily discuss um, Grant Morrison's run and uh, really where the Doom Patrol was uh, when Pollock picks up and when the series transitions to the Vertigo imprint. Um, we also begin this conversation by really just chit-chatting about video games. So if you would rather skip that, um, there will be a timestamp, um, and you can also just skip ahead about 10 minutes or so. Thank you, and please enjoy. All right, take two. Let's go. Uh, apparently hitting space is not the thing you want to do on a keyboard while you're recording because yeah. it pauses stuff. Welcome Who'd to um, Alex's PlayStation 3, a podcast about Alex's PlayStation 3. Uh, well, fun fact. I will at some point play Final Fantasy 13. Oh, but I guess you have on to my play PlayStation that on PlayStation 3. 3? Yeah. Can't you do that on PlayStation 4? Is it not available? Uh, I don't think 13 oh, is. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I didn't don't realize know that. that. Actually, let, you can play it on PC these days. It just feels like a kind check. of thing. I'd be surprised if they really made it so hard to get to. You can play Final Fantasy twelve on your PS4, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Let's see. Final Fantasy I mean also, um actually no the, the PS I well I have a PS five, not a PS four. Oh you do. So and but it a is PS5 not PS five can play most PS four games, right? Correct, but I don't think thirteen came out on yeah, so it really uh, is only available on PC. That's pretty strange. Let's see. Let's uh, let me let me fact check that because I'm actually not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure it only came out playstation 3 xbox 360 weirdly enough a year later and windows and that's there it. you go Jeez, no ps4 truly support. strange yeah uh, i didn't realize it was so inaccessible well i guess it's not an, it's not inaccessible if you can get it on their pc yeah. but which i could i just wanted it on my ps3 still kind of a bummer i guess a lot of xbox 360 stuff is also available on the xbox one x right yeah it's kind of wild how we've all learned to say xbox one x yeah Really is something. Well, because it's actually like kind of funny. It's not an absurd name. Weirdly enough, Final Fantasy 13 on the Xbox 360 is more playable on later generations of Xbox than Final Fantasy on the PS3. Yeah, I guess so. That's so weird. Well, that was a little interesting. Sometimes deviation. that's how it goes. Yeah. I guess. But it's anyway, really at, something. Some, at some point, I will play that game and I'll play Final Fantasy 13 too. You'll finally be able to say and whether Lightning Returns. I've heard maybe. Lightning Returns is pretty interesting. I, I that's the, that's what I'm building up with this whole journey is I want to play Lightning Returns. Yeah. I've also heard interesting things. People so. do. There are people who go to bat for Final Fantasy 13 these days. I, I know. Think. It's you know, isn't that the way with all of these games? It's like every kind of, Final Fantasy game has its fans and its haters. Yeah, because every Final Fantasy game is someone's first Final Fantasy game. And then it's that Final Fantasy for them. Yeah, I mean... That's a fact. What I'll say for Dragon Quest is just about every Dragon Quest game only has lovers and very few haters, I feel like. But that might might not be true. Mm. It could be that there are people who are much more critical out there. I don't know. I'd be curious. I guess what I mean is that most people, they'd say, oh, uh, this Dragon Quest is great. No, this Dragon Quest is great. 
but Final Fantasy, I feel like it's I hate this one. No, I hate that one. Like that's not a real that's Final true. Fantasy or something. And then there's we we are just having this exact conversation about Fire Emblem. Oh, because that's true. another one where you, th- there is no consensus, and it goes the other way around. Like so. I, I mean. What I just said, I think, is actually pretty facetious. There are tons of people who only ever want to talk about their favorite Final Fantasy games. So, fair. Like people who say Final Fantasy IX is the best one. And I can, I mean, uh, that's another one I have to play. And I, yeah. but I could, I, I could understand that argument. Gotten all the way through that one either. Although it has um, a lot of good mods for PC. I think if you're going to play it, that might be the version to go for. I mean, we've surely gone far enough now that Final Fantasy VIII is has gone beyond the instant, instant sort of disdain for that game and is. Oh, no, it's interesting. Oh, no, there are so. people who love Final Fantasy Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, there are people who say uh, the final dungeon in Final Fantasy VIII is maybe the best final dungeon in any Final Fantasy game. Interesting. Yeah. So, there it is. It's I, like I, a little mini-game in its own it, right. It I takes can't. away all your abilities, and you have to go through and fight bosses to get your abilities back. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. I kind of yeah. hate... So, in a giant medieval castle oh, after an entire game of science fiction. I have feelings about games that remove mechanics later on, but that's another story. Fair. Okay. Um, as we digress further and further... Uh, maybe we should rein this back in. Yeah. So actually, starting the podcast now. Yes, the podcast is actually starting. Has begun. I don't know how much of this is actually going to make it in the episode. Maybe a lot more of this will make it in. We'll see. We'll, we'll see knows. how I feel if I feel generous when I'm cutting. Cut things. it all out. It's all boring. We've talked about this before. Maybe. Or maybe we haven't maybe. talked about this on mic. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. We haven't done a Final Fantasy episode yet. Yeah, Final Fantasy 16 is coming out at some point That's here. That's true, but I don't have that, a PS5, though. Correct. Um, There's no reason to get one. The P- there aren't really any good games for PS5. Actually, that's not true. But I feel like a lot of the ones that are exclusive PS5, to the 5, yeah. right? Like, There's just not that many. Like, Resident Evil just came out, Resident Evil 4, and people love that one. Right. But it's on PS4, too, even though I think the PS5 version is probably better. But. The Dead Space remake is good. I will give it that. Elden Ring is on PS4. But it's on PS4, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know that there's anything that really necessitates you, except for Final Fantasy 16. I think that's the first if it's thing. Good, I'm getting, thing. A, I'm getting a little worried. Right. We'll have to see how it plays out. Um, well, I'll probably be your early barometer on that one because I will yeah. probably. I think I have pre-ordered it. I heard they tried so. to pet the dog in the game, but then they accidentally attacked the dog, which is too bad. Oh, that seems like the first thing you try to so resolve. That's so unfortunate. Holy shit. Oh, I want to love this thing. Die. What? <laughs> I don't think the dog died. Maybe they were unhappy, though. Uh, <laughs> Why did you do that? That's I unforgivable. knew that you were driven for revenge, but not revenge against unforgivable. me. Unforgivable. Wow. Um, back to Final Fantasy. I would love to do a, a Final Fantasy episode at some point there's so much of it that's the problem um, i feel like you need to zero in on some point of it right uh, and i'll admit i've never actually played all the way through a final fantasy game ever fair i've played th- all the way through final fantasy 7 final fantasy uh remake a uh, 7 remake uh final fantasy 15 yeah and is that it i need to play more final interesting Fantasies. yeah I, I i haven't played through that many like final fantasy is a game that i've come to very late in my life um i do at some point want to play oh, eight. right because you're a pc gamer i remember Correct. Now. yeah okay um i do want to play eight at some point i have nine as well i have 10 uh i don't have 12 but i can probably get that i've been uh really uh told again and again and again by a friend of the podcast jade that i should play 12 and that's the one that i should play and that i will be unforgiven forever if i play 13 before it i mean you know um, I've heard so. some folks say that 10 is secretly one of the best ones. Or not secretly, like 10 was really popular when it came out. And I think folks turn against it a bit because they're saying, oh, the voice acting's bad. 
Um, it like really shows the fact it was it came out fairly early in the PS2's yeah. lifespan. They're still still figuring out what kind of game they want to make. There's this terrible like True. metal. Because like it new still metal has, song. it still has uh, the fixed camera angles, which yeah, they do does. away with then, I think, in 12, correct? Yeah, and it's very linear. So, but yeah. I think the way it tells its story and, like, ties it into the characters is really classic, well-done Final Fantasy melodrama, where it really, like, tells this... It's a story that has really bonkers cosmic stuff in it, but everything, like, loops into these central human themes of death and like tr- trauma and people's relations with their families and their friends and all this stuff. Right. It's pretty well done uh, from what I've heard. Interesting. So, so and again, pretty thematically, pretty unified in terms of world and setting right, and that kind of thing right. as well. Compared um, to a lot of other Final Fantasy games that just feel like a bunch of random stuff thrown into a pot and kind of unified through a central aesthetic. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that, well, that's about the time when they kind of lose the thread on what a Final Fantasy is or rather they I mean, it's a whole complicated question yeah with a certain idea and then just struggle to make i mean it if anything like, like it feels like final final fantasy 10 and kingdom hearts were like square at the top of like that particular mm. aesthetic in terms of what was cool culturally and then everything after that sort of felt like they were really casting around and at some point they fall out of the zeitgeist and yeah. they're just sort of trying frantically to get back in it and in fact i think are still today i don't think they really they still put out tons of cool stuff but i don't think they know how yeah. to be like in it, the middle where it's happening anymore. It, it, it's not um at you know it's not advent children because again i think that that was the genie in the bottle that they've tried to kind of recreate oh it's i don't know Fantasy i feel advent like advent children is kind of embarrassing maybe it is i mean i don't i watched it as a youth oh, fair. and ne- could never understand what it anything in it because my friends were like alex you have to watch this it's oh, the right. coolest thing ever never having played final fantasy 7 i was, it was like i don't yeah, i can't imagine any making any sense so in that case um although you know anyway. it's also i mean we can we can talk a whole bunch yeah, about that's final a, fantasy that's a whole podcast and how the characters um, have been mis- were misunderstood for many years because of that game's bad translation realistically yeah. before we get to a final fantasy uh podcast i will be playing near and yeah. we need to come. I, it, I, I'm. It would be too bold to say that's the next one. Near will be fun to talk about because I need more time with Near before that happens. But that'll that'll be soon. I'll also say, so. considering we've talked about The Last of Us in the past, the first Near might actually be more interesting to talk about because that game oh, really okay. does predict a lot of the datifications of game stuff that happens later, like the chronological first one. So it'd yeah. be uh, Replicant. Yes, that's the, right. Because the, the, the Japanese version, which is the version that's available now, it's yeah. uh, the main character and his sister. But in the original American version, it was the main character and his daughter. And the way they write that relationship and have it so it's like about this guy who's trying to help his kid, but is also like this terrible murderer. And so we're using that as leverage mm. in the story where you like really want the main character to succeed, but you're also terrified they're going to hurt people. It's like right, where right. the dramatic engine of that thing is. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. At some point here, I need, I need to finish a couple of things because I have somehow... Uh, gotten knee deep into Saga. Uh, still haven't finished Fire Emblem. Okay, and I'm still Ace Attorneying somewhere in there. So all I those feel things. like this is like really complicating your drive to finish things. It it, it it is, and uh, yet I will. I will persevere. I'll hold you to that. Okay, so Alex, um, what's our podcast yes. about today? About um, we are not here to talk about video games. That's today. right. We are here to talk about comics. Yes, particularly. 
um, Western comics, American comics to be specific, in the early 90s. And very specifically to talk about the Rachel Pollock run on Doom Patrol that I think began in 1992, I want to say. Um, as we both realize that we neither one of us has taken <laughs> notes on this one very specific and critical element. Well, you didn't I have, have just to bring exposed. it up, Alex. <laughs> Um, but as I, as we both flip or look at our phones, we will have this for you here in a minute. It was in fact, 1993, March of 1993, okay. which is weirdly appropriate because we are recording this well, briefly after March has ended in April. So Alex, this is a, how many times have we covered Western comics on here before we did? We covered a bunch of Western comics Not in the SPX episode and the Zine yeah. Fest episode. And in or that best Pau. of the year one, and Pau Pau. also kind of counts, yeah. But and have we ever talked about superhero stuff? We did Lavender Jack, which was we did that counts, uh, kind of counts, yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't, it's, it sort of does like it doesn't belong to the sort of print oeuvre that you would necessarily associate with what we're talking about, but right. But I feel it, like a lot of the spirit is there, yeah, yeah. Of, it's yeah, like yeah, a agreed. pulp story about larger than life vigilante yeah. figures, yeah. Uh, but I think this is, yeah, as far as print comics go, this is our first like. DC or Marvel adjacent adjacent because it's, it starts as a DC Doom Patrol does but then by the time we're talking about it it's yeah. Vertigo which no longer exists rip RIP yeah yeah you may think listening to those podcasts oh these people are just a bunch of folks Weeps. who <laughs> only like read Japanese comics and uh, play Japanese video games and like sometimes read indie comics there's no way they'd read superhero comics right wrong Alex reads superhero comics I all have the time a whole closet full there's like Four stacks of comics, like right now, next to Adam. Yeah, because... right, right now Anyways. on Alex's sofa, there are there is a pile of something like sixty or eighty oh, it's comics. More than that. 100? That is like probably half of a long box just worth of comics. All stacked up. Like Alex is a yeah. sort of person. He doesn't just buy like the trade back paper, the trade paperbacks like sensible people do. He buys <laughs> the individual issues. Who does that anymore? Nobody. Um, I do, and I have a closet full of those. Yeah, Alex for does. It. I um. It's a honestly don't do it. It's a pain. Um, I have to occasionally go to eBay to like kind of declutter some of it and come to terms with uh, the reality yeah. of am I ever going to read this again? I mean, no. it's it's a way to experience this stuff. It I is. Suppose. It is because you know comics were originally packaged so you could get just get like twenty or thirty pages oh, in a single issue, right? And I love the honestly at the end of the day, the experience that is addictive to that is you go into a comic shop right. on Wednesday or in my case a little bit later in the week when you can do so. Uh you pick up, I don't know, ten to fifteen comics because you're a hopeless addict. And then you have ten to fifteen stories that you can read that week um you know at your convenience and it's just this diversity of content right um which is really cool to experience um now it's a very unfocused way to experience it particularly nowadays when everything is geared towards the trade yeah but I'm and still there, there has been this increased decompression as well right yes like not in all cases i feel like the pendulum's actually swung back a little bit and now you're having folks who sort of will publicly say nothing happened in this issue how right. dare you right but i think the idea of a single issue of a comic telling a complete story or at least having some kind of appeal to it that's encapsulated within that space is not necessarily as prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and issues have literally physically gotten shorter. Mm. Um, I think they used to be closer to 24 pages at one point and they went down to 20 for a while. They've kind of gone back up. Now they try to, to stick 
like backup features to kind of uh, beef up some issues. Right. At least DC has done so. Um, so the the comic as a monthly medium is really sort of dying out. I feel like there's more exciting things probably in the United going, States. Anyway. In the United States, correct. And to be fair, com- um, when we say com- we're, we're, you're referring to comics as a monthly medium, right? Right. Because comics are succeeding in, other, in all other kinds of ways. That's, that's correct. Like mangas, pretty big. Webtoons oh, are absolutely. pretty big. Um, um, oh, heck, look at, I mean, any any graphic novel market. Yeah, art know, stuff, stuff for is, uh, kids as well. Yeah, the kids' yeah. comics market is huge in the yeah. U.S. I mean, specifically and like middle grade stuff as well. Arguably, I mean, it's not necessarily commercially successful, but in terms of how interesting it is, zines and that sort of layer of comics yeah. making that is not necessarily published with any, you know, periodic regularity but is nonetheless is where interesting things happen so and this stuff is always messy because the u.s treats its artists extremely poorly so the kind of work that might happen if it actually invested some in those people doesn't always happen easily but there are still people out there who are doing the work yeah um so i should bring up we're talking about doom patrol uh specifically we're talking about the rachel pollock run however i feel like you can't really talk about doom patrol without bringing in uh, Grant Morrison's earlier run. Yes. Um, so Grant, I should say here. Um, so what are the Doom Patrol? The Doom Patrol are. Let's see. I took notes here. Well, the original Doom Patrol it right. predates this run. Yes, that's what I was yes. going to say. Uh, the Doom Patrol was created in 1963 yep. by Arnold Drake. Uh, oh no, I my handwriting is not especially good here. Uh, Arnold Drake, Bob Hanley, and Bruno. Premian, Premit, Premiani. I'm gonna double check this. Yeah, they premiered in an issue, the 80th issue of something called My Greatest Adventure, and it started with, you know, like the central premise of a man in the wheelchair leading a team of dysfunctional superheroes. You might listen to that and say, "Wait a second, doesn't that sound kind of like the X-Men?" And you'd be right. However. Uh, my understanding is that Doom Patrol actually came out before the. I X-Men. was about to actually say exactly that. It cannot. Right. I mean, they all sound alike because they're all nipping at the same, I think, zeitgeist that mm. existed in that sort of early '60s. Because you look at the Fantastic Four, you look at the X Men, right? You look at the Doom Patrol and the Legion of Superheroes, uh, also from DC Comics, and I think they all play in a very sort of similar pool and it's particularly interesting to me because uh we mentioned grant morrison right who writes doom patrol and then writes the x-men later on so there's a lot of snake eating its own tail on this one right i mean it is interesting because doom patrol i believe is like it's a dc team right it is yeah and so it's founded um i mean so i should say in um doing research for this episode i read through a bunch of there is a series of essays um, on the internet that's been published as a bunch of self-published books called Last War in Albion. Uh, sorry, Last War in Albion by uh, Elizabeth Sandifer, mm-hmm. who's written a bunch on the internet about Doctor Who mm-hmm. and Vertigo Comics and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Doom Patrol was, of course, like a big chunk of what she's covered as part of that feature. But she talks about how you have sort of this trade-off that happens, right? Where the Doom Patrol sort of comes out and the X-Men comes out a bit after that. And you can argue like, well, what were the X-Men inspired by the Doom Patrol? Right. Or were they not? Was it coincidence? Uh, we don't really know. It's possible they were. People were just picking ideas from each other all the time those days. Nothing was set in stone. But what's interesting is that 
so the Doom Patrol keeps coming out for a while. They're putting out issues. I have not read those earlier issues of the Doom Patrol, but apparently people quite like them. Like it's maybe like a little bit dated, but there's still some good mm-hmm. stuff in there. But eventually, like it sort of stops moving. Um, there's this event that kills off all the characters in the story, which is something that will happen over and over again <laughs> throughout the history of the Doom Patrol. And but, they're not even the Suicide Squad. Right. But so what happens is that um, several years later, through the 1980s, they bring back the X-Men. And I believe with the X-Men, you have like a Len Wein and Dave Cockrum, right? And there's this trend, there's a switch that happens where Chris Claremont takes over after there's this big change up on the team. And Claremont reinvents those characters and creates this whole new, very popular paradigm for what a superhero story can look like. Also, Dave Cockrum is a very funny name for you to bring up. Because yeah. remember how I mentioned that there's a zeitgeist that is shared at the creation? Cockrum is also well known for his work on the X-Men. Really? And also the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, oh, now you've dropped the name. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah Alex again, really wants to do a Legion of the, Superhero the episodes. Sna- again, well, we'll get there, we'll get there yeah. eventually. It's, gonna, it's probably going to happen. Um, here's my, my very quick, uh, fun fact about Dave Cockrum and the Legion of Superheroes and particularly the X-Men Nightcrawler was initially created as a character of the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, and they brought him over. He, uh, switched, um, from, you know, DC to Marvel. Yeah. He basically just took his character design and was like, it's an X-Men now. It's funny how much superhero stuff is just that. It's like, you think it's, (laughs) ah, yes, this divine pantheon, modern mythology, but just picking and choosing uh, licensed characters and dropping them down in your setting and going, oh, yep. okay, they're just part of this now. What's happening? So Nightcrawler was yeah. meant to be an actual alien from right. like one of the many planets across the galaxy that you know, because the Legion of Superheroes is set in you know the far future, yeah. a thousand years from now, in like the thirtieth, then thirty first century. And this yeah. now has me thinking: what if you put Nightcrawler in a Doom Patrol? Th- there's a reason why this was in my mind. And oh, I was yeah. thinking of Cockrum in the context of Doom Patrol, and that's because the Cooperberg run. Right. That uh, comes later in. That's what I was going to say. It is inspired by Len. Okay. Yep. We're, exactly. We're both getting to the That's same it. thing. We're I was just the same point. I was just in your head Which like two seconds from now. You can uh, make the argument like uh, was X Men inspired by Doom Patrol? Was it a coincidence? But what we do know is that at that point there was a switch where all of a sudden DC said, "Well, why don't we sort of kickstart Doom Patrol again?" Except now they're the ones who are taking inspiration from X Men right. instead of the other way around. And they say, what if we do it this way? And they try it. It doesn't really work. It's like you said, it's Cooperberg, right? Yeah. yeah. And Cooperberg, I feel like he wants to tell more of a traditional superhero story. But even like going back to the very start of the Doom Patrol, that's not really what they are. Like the Doom Patrol has always been pretty weird. And so uh, partway through his run, they decide, well, let's pull in another writer to try to salvage things and see what we can do. And in fact, it's a... Eight, eight, after 18 issues, right. that's how long it lasts. So they bring in Grant Morrison, who at that time was an up-and-coming comics writer, a part of like a generation of uh, writers from Britain, Scotland, and elsewhere who were sort of being brought in to do work as part of these U.S. comics imprints. And to Harold Morrison's coming, uh, they kill off almost the entire cast again. Like This is just a reoccurring thing in the Doom Patrol. It's writers like blowing everything up and saying, okay, whoever's going to come next, like pretty much has a blank slate. And this will also interestingly happen at the end of Morrison's run as well. But so 
Uh, that brings us... So Morrison did a variable-regarded Doom Patrol run that lasted for something like uh, 40, 50 issues or so, uh, 60 six, issues. So between issue 19 and I want to say issue 63 right. is where Morrison exists because with issue 64 is where Rachel Pollock picks up. Yeah. It, so it predicts a lot of so this and uh, Morrison's earlier work as well for DC Animal Man together with stuff like Grant Moore so with uh, Alan Moore Swamp Thing and sort of a number of other series at that time uh, paves a road for what becomes a Vertigo imprint at DC, right? right? And Which, in fact, Rachel Pollock's run is the very first right. issue that of the Doom Patrol under the Vertigo imprint. Right. Once Grant Morrison leaves the character, Pollock sort of comes on board. Yeah. And her reign on Doom Patrol is like right at the beginning of classic Vertigo as we refer to it today. Vertigo, one of maybe one of the most culturally beloved parts of DC, honestly. Like, that, I don't think we've talked about it. That got torpedoed a... for freaking Black Label recently. Yeah. I'm still bitter. Like, I don't... <laughs> so dumb. Yeah, anyway. I don't think we've brought up Vertigo on this com on this podcast, right? We have not yet. But uh, it, let me tell you, I, so I picked up this omnibus of Pollock's run, and it's under the DC Black Label oh, that's imprint gross. now. I hate and, it. I, and it's just so weird to me. And I'm sorry to go off on this tangent, no, it's but it's just I have feelings, clearly. For me to read a Vertigo comic that has been, in fairness, very nicely reprinted in this right. lovely omnibus, but with black label on it. I mean... And it took forever to be reprinted, too, which we'll get to. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah, uh, here we are. We have, uh, they finally put out a omnibus collection of Pollock's work, which took ages. People have been for years arguing that Pollock's run on Doom Patrol is secretly, like, one of the better missing links of Vertigo that exists, up with stuff like Peter Milligan's Enigma, which, to be fair, like has a really strong cult fan base, I think, among comics writers and some other folks. So this is where I make a bit of a uh, admission. Okay, um, is that I I was completely blithely unaware. Oh, of this run. Yeah, and you're actually the one who put it on the on the radar for me a couple of weeks ago when we were brainstorming ideas mm. for whatever are we going to do for our next podcast, and you said, "Well, what about Pollock's Doom Patrol?" Right, and I said, "Who?" And then I looked it up and, and I learned that uh, she obviously wrote this, you know, very good run on Doom Patrol was also and is Although it's still. much shorter than Morrison's. It lasts Correct. for just 20 something issues even. Yeah. Uh, between issue 64 and I want to say 87. Or Not so. nearly as many. So it's like yeah. 20 some, but um, 87. That is correct. Right. Um, um, but sorry. So you interrupted me um, reg regarding Vertigo yes. Comics. Yes. I mean, you have stuff like uh, the Sandman, which was just oh, adapted. Oh, I'm so sorry, I, I didn't realize you're there's yeah apologies. stuff like yeah. the Sandman that was adapted to a Netflix series recently that I didn't think was especially good, but it's 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 out there, um, is very popular, was widely regarded as one of the greatest comic series of all time. I feel like it's aged strongly in several respects. I don't know what my feelings are about Gaiman now, but it was very important at the time. You have stuff mm. like Garth Ennis's Preacher, which is a series that again is dated in many ways, yeah. but is also very important and does some things exceptionally well, despite its issues. You have stuff like, I mean, just deep cuts, like Peter Milligan's well, Shade the Changing there's Man. There's also fables. Also fables. 
a series that has not aged particularly well (laughs) and i would say is actually not particularly good maybe uh it's come back i don't know if you know you it's come back recently oh it has another arc yeah which is also bizarre to the max but i feel bad that we're just um, spending all this time dumping on vertigo comics because vertigo is very interesting well suffice to say it's a imprint that has tons of really interesting works that and broke a lot of conventions that you would see exactly. in comics from that magazine. At the but time. I think that's a good disclaimer for our entire conversation today. Right. Because I think the risk of being so, I think, socially relevant as Vertigo was in its time and, and so kind of pushing the boundaries of what was happening in the early to mid-90s and even beyond, I mean, into the early 2000s, is that you run the risk of the conversation eventually moving beyond you. And as you push that envelope, you get left behind. Mm. And I think that is what happens with a lot of these Vertigo comics is they did push the boundary at that point. And we are in a more complex place now where these conversations are being had at a different level where there's even language for things that there just wasn't back yeah. then, um, which invariably leaves these works behind. Um yeah, although I feel like one of the cool so, things about this, but it doesn't stuff, invalidate him. I guess is what I'm trying. One of to the say. cool things about this stuff, and also one of the, the, just how great it is, how deep, of a, backlog there is for Vertigo stuff, is that these books are just rediscovered all the time. Yeah, like I feel like people will talk about Sandman or Preacher. Well, for because, instance, our this very episode. yeah, this very episode. Uh, yeah, people talk about Sandman or Preacher. Like they'll make video games based on fables, but even then, like it wasn't until I started working at a bookstore a couple of years ago, I read about Enigma by Peter Milligan and read it. And of course, like there's some stuff in there that is bonkers and Milligan should not have written because it's extremely messy. But you look at like the spirit of it and what it's doing and you go, oh, wow, like this is really interesting. So, And yet it's just like a, I don't know, like a six, eight issue book that's just out there and people don't really talk about much anymore, but did very much predict a lot of the stuff that came later. And you can just, pull it out of the pile and go, oh, wow, this book was really fascinating for its time. And now you can read it. Also, and it almost predicts like some of the stuff we're reading today. I don't know yeah. how we didn't mention Hellblazer. Hellblazer is also hugely important. Yeah. And it's rough with Hellblazer because there's so much of it. Yeah. And there's so many different writers who worked on it. And it's to the point where it's so sprawling, it's hard to well, and so many, roll it all up into right, something and, comprehensible in the way that you can say, right. ah, yes, I read all of the invisibles and this is what it tells me about well, because life. It, like, Hellblazer so almost it. became like a testing ground for talent. Like you yeah. had to go have your run of Hellblazer to kind of put your mark on that sort of long totem pole of, yeah. of work. Which yeah, folks is, like uh, Garth Ennis in there. Yeah. People like Brian Azzarello, who's a writer who's uh, also pretty messy in their own way. Yeah, there's... Um, I think was Scott Snyder in Hellblazer. I don't remember. Um, I don't know that he did a Hellblazer run. Uh, I feel like I'm a lot of well Snyder versed. stuff is in a similar spirit. Um, uh, I know Jason Aaron. Did oh yeah, a, a very brief run on, on right. Hellblazer. And Aaron, like another writer who became really yeah. huge later, whose yeah. stuff even inspired a bunch of Marvel well, movies. His, actually, his right. first few works were with Vertigo as well. Right. Uh, Scalp, notably, Scalp. and before that, the other side. I want to say okay. Um, which was like a, a work on on the war in Vietnam. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, a, a lot of creators that actually are, are you familiar with uh, Amy Reader? She's an artist. I don't know. Okay, so the, the name doesn't ring a bell, but she also got her start. Oh, I'm interesting. Pretty sure with Vertigo with um, Madame Xanadu. Oh, uh, interesting. Written by Matt Wagner. Wagner? Oh, yeah. Wagner. Are um, they the person who did Grendel? 
Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah, Grendel is also pretty famous uh, in its own right. Though I don't think it's linked to Vertigo at all. It's a separate thing. No, that is, I think that's under, I want to say Dark Horse, but Maybe. I could be wrong. Yeah. So this is a whole lot of, yeah. uh, you know, pre- preface right i just wanted to make sure that we were grounded in what this is why vertigo is important it could be and, that yeah. people who listen to this episode might not know they might know like oh i've watched salmon on netflix but i not realize there's like 70 issues plus of it out there well and that's the other thing you pick up i mean as i was referencing earlier you pick up a vertigo comic that has been reprinted right in the past i don't know five years or so since vertigo has ceased to be its own imprint, it's going to probably say DC black label on it. So DC has become the branding of all of the past vertigo because it was still DC back then, but vertigo became the sort of seal of quality for all of these comics that is now completely gone. So I wouldn't fault someone for knowing about Sandman for watching the show, seeing it labeled as DC comics, maybe even picking up a recent print of it, seeing it as DC comics and not knowing what the heck vertigo is. Yeah. And to be fair, Um, you still do have writers who operate in the same writers and artists as well. I should say yes. Who operate in the same tradition of what vertigo was at that time. Like I think uh, if you're interested, Ram V Yep. Uh, who has done superhero comics in the past that are more mainstream, but has also uh, written a lot of work that feels very much in conversation with those earlier Vertigo titles while having like more awareness about things like race and colonialism yep. that a lot of earlier Vertigo stuff just completely failed at. If you're interested in this, I highly recommend checking out Ritesh Babu's work over at Comic Book Herald. He's done like a really excellent job uh, writing up stuff like... Um, I think On the Savage Shores is a title, which is like a mm. story about vampires yep. from India I, fighting I off the I East have, and I've Asian read it. Company. Yeah. Uh, I have the singles. I was actually picking that up as it was coming out. I right. was somehow on the Ram V train really early on. Yeah. But. And I think The Many Deaths of Lila Starr, is that the one as well? Yes, I yeah. have that Which one is there. a book that is absolutely like, ah, yes, what if you... I mean, it's there's a, like a, a lot of it's that a very Vertigo, Vertigo Sandman book. stuff in there. I would, yeah. I would, I would, I mean, yeah, all of the above, really. I mean, it's shorter. I'd love to see what V, what Ram V could do with like 60 or 70 issues to tell that kind of story. But I mean, the, uh, the, the first opportunity he's really getting to do that is his run on Detective. True. But which... so that, that all brings us to the question of Pollock's Doom Patrol run. Yes. And, yeah. and I had, I had some questions for you on this, Adam, because again, okay. like I, I, like I mentioned briefly earlier, I was, very ignorant and you're not the work. only one i feel like in the past when it comes to doom patrol the morrison run is what everyone thinks of like when gerald when gerald way restarted the doom patrol you read the first issues of that way was clearly drawing on morrison's doom patrol right. you watch a television show that came out that television show is pulling directly again from morrison's doom patrol like morrison's version of the doom patrol and those characters like characters like Crazy Jane or Rebus or even like that specific version of Cliff right. Steele, a robot man, right? Are all just traced so much from what Morrison did. And well, save for the TV show. Yeah. And Pollock came point. right after yeah. Morrison. And I feel like what I read at the time was, oh, uh, Pollock's run was not weird enough to like follow Morrison's run or Paul's, Pollock's run was too weird or it was success or it was a failure. It just right. didn't really get discussed in the same light. It sort Which of just was invisible. Shame. And, yeah. and, it, and it's particularly a shame if you're part of really our generation, right? Because I come into comics really 
with like a lot more, you know, American comics, you know, DC, Marvel, whatever, Vertigo, right. et cetera, Image. Uh, I really start to get into that, let's say, around roughly 2006. Mm. And then by the time I'm out of college and I have more income to spend on this stuff, it's like 2009. So by that point in time, uh, there were still a lot of good Vertigo stuff. Like I right. coming out, I was picking up Scalped. As it was coming out, but let me tell you, which was one of like the last classics, right? It is, but also, my goodness, is it? You know, in hindsight, having gone back to it um, after the fact, written by a white man about you know Native Americans, and I really don't know how. I mean, I think One Hundred Bullets by Azarello was sort of playing in similar territory, right? Right. That was like a crime comic that was trying to touch on this stuff and may or may not have done a good job at that. As far as a crime comic is concerned, Scalp is freaking amazing, but I don't know how well it does in terms of not, I mean, really appropriative, you know, something that is not Jason Aaron's to tell. I mean, I've I've heard that, um, I've heard that criticism as well, and I think, um, considering how widespread Aaron stuff is right. now, we're missing someone to really dig in there and say, Oh, what was called doing really? Like, what does this say? Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah. anyway, I was there as it was coming up, but, but what I wasn't there for, cause I couldn't have been, I was too young. Right. I was born in 87. So like, you know, the, what, uh, Grant Morrison's run on uh, doom patrol starts in what? 89. So I would have been, uh, two years old. Yeah. 89. Yeah. Do you remember um, when you first discovered it? So it, the, that's, that's what I'm getting to. So okay. like it, for me, um, my interest in kind of going back uh, to a lot of these like sort of quintessential runs as I was getting more into comics, as I was experiencing more, um, you know, wider breadth of comics, you kind of want to go back and understand really what came before. Yeah. And it would have been actually about, probably around 2012, 2013, when I went on a huge Grant Morrison sort of retro binge. Mm. This would have been around the time of his Batman run as well, I believe. I have to ver- check when that run actually was happening before I put my foot in my mouth with 2012, 2013. But it feels about like a straight decade ago that I went back and I, I read his Animal Man. Oh, sorry, their Animal Man. I'm going to... Yeah, we should clarify. I'm going uh, to Grant apologize. Morrison currently yeah. um, identifies it with they, them pronouns. They're non-binary. And yeah. I will probably mess this up a few times and I'm I'll try really to hold sorry. you to that. I need to pay closer Please, attention. We'll, we'll hold yeah. each other honest. That's what we got to do here. Um, and um, yeah, they, they, I go back to you know their, their Doom Patrol, their uh, Animal Man. Uh, pick up. I mean, week three wasn't that old. Uh, it was pretty recent, I think, relatively speaking. At that relatively speaking, uh, Flex Mental, I think, was was also around that time as well. Although Flex Mental, uh, Fle- that does it is linked to Doom Patrol through it the is, characters, right? Because uh, he first appears in Doom Patrol. Yeah. Um, but then there was like the solo Flex Mental book, also um, like a comics cult classic for that particular area right. as well. There are people who said that it was their favorite Grant Morrison comic for ages. I feel like. Oh, interesting. I don't know if they say that as much anymore, but they're they're out there. Like I the hardcore Flex Mattel fans. Say the Grant Morrison work that is shorter and more focused tends to be better, in my opinion. Mm. Um at least stands the You're making many better. Batman fans very unhappy right now, Alex. Yeah, I I'd read that whole run. Um, you know, huge yeah, I haven't done that yet. Huge fan of Batman and Robin, particularly I think within that run is I think the by far the the standout where you get Dick Grayson as Batman mm. 
and Damian Wayne as Robin. I think that is to me the quintessential like period in that run. Right. Um I think nothing that comes after or nothing that came before it really stands up to that. Uh just Frank quietly on art is also yeah, But amazing. what about Doom Patrol, Alex? So, yes, yeah, no, sorry. Um, I, I digress. So yeah. point being is I go back, but in all of that, because it wasn't in print, because unless you go back and really scavenge through those single issues, the Pollock run is just invisible. Right. To to someone like me at that point going back, it, it just the internet was also not maybe as well developed in terms of maybe flagging this to my attention at that mm. point in time. So unless I would have run, and heck, even nowadays, unless I run into someone like yourself, who was like, hey, read this. Uh, and I obviously didn't, so I didn't. Which yeah. brings me to, very roundabout way, uh, to my question for you, which is, how did you come across Rachel Pollock's work? And Because it clearly was important enough for you to bring it up and you know, flag it for something that we should talk about. So I'm curious about what your history with her work has been. Right. So I should say, um, my history of Rachel Pollock is not as extensive as my history of Grant Morrison. I do want to first briefly talk about how I first encountered the Doom Patrol comics. I first found Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol comics in collected editions at a local bookshop near my house. Uh, there's a big graphic novel section. There's all of like the of Morrison's Doom Patrol books there. So of course I do what you do when you're a broke teenager in high school you just sit down right by the graphic novel section and take the book off the shelf and you just sit there reading it, hoping no one catches you and tells you to put it back. So so many people do that. That's I what I do for care. a while. <laughs> and so I go through all of those and, um, you know, it makes a really big impression on me. I've since heard it said, I think um, Tegan O'Neill is a person who writes this in her big uh, two-part essay, The Wreckage, over on Comics Journal. Mm-hmm. She says that you really want to read Doom Patrol when you're 15 rather than when you're 30. And that's probably true. It's like the kind of series where there's a lot of stuff in it. And I've heard people say not all of it stands up as well. But when you haven't seen any of the stuff in it, it's just really mind-blowing. Like, oh my god, there's Dada and like giant scissor people and other realities and people of multiple personalities. And it's all like in there. And it's just really fascinating, like seeing it all it's exploding out, like it's this grand work of maximalism that still like mm. feels yeah. a bit warmer and friendlier than something like the Invisibles. Like Morrison would take this story of like outsiders bound together in a common cause to fight back against the system, and he'd retell it later in a way that was much more consciously well, or they they would retell it later in a way that was much more consciously thematic. But right. Doom Patrol feels like it sits right at the intersection of being like a consciously quote unquote difficult work for a superhero book and still being a superhero book. Like it's right. trying to shock you, but it Ooh. has this framework. I would contest oh, that it yeah. is a superhero book. Whereas I think really their take on the X-Men is a superhero book. Their take on Doom Patrol is not. Oh, really? And actually, I don't want us to get completely sidetracked here. Okay. But I have a very pithy sort of uh, approximation of how I see Graham Morrison's run on Doom Patrol versus Pollock's run on Doom Patrol. And I, we can get into that later. Mm. So I should say that that run is very precious to me. Like I kind of keep it close to my heart. It might actually be one of, at that time, like the Morrison run I enjoyed the most. Like I'd read a bunch of Morrison's other stuff and a lot of it is pretty interesting, 
mean, they've done more conventional superhero work, like stuff like Justice League. Mm -hmm. And then they've done even more like convoluted superhero work, like Batman, even stuff like All-Star Superman, which people revere. Right. But some years later, I sort of, when I'm researching and trying to learn about other interesting comics runs, I start seeing people really come out and say, oh, Paul X run is underrated. Paul X run is secretly um, as good as Morrison's run or better than Morrison's run in some ways. I would like, say as it part ages of that, better. I, I will yeah. go on the record right now. I think it ages better for sure. In some of that, in that Last War and Albion series yeah. I mentioned, Elizabeth Sandifer like, devotes a chapter to Paul X Doom Patrol run and sort of says that while it's more accessible and like more restrained in some ways... It is much more specific and interesting as well, which I think mm-hmm. is actually true, especially later on in the series. Um, there's a piece on Comicsocity as well from a couple of years ago that defends Pollock's Doom Patrol as like this work that's really ahead of its time and also like does justice to like the female cast of Doom Patrol in a way mm-hmm. that Morrison oh, even absolutely. didn't really do. Yeah. I would actually go so far as to say that for Morrison's Doom Patrol, um, Cliff Steele, Robot Robot Man, is probably the chief protagonist. Yeah. But for Pollock's run, it's Dorothy more so. Yeah. Which, is, to be fair, I think Pollock does actually do a bunch of really interesting things of robot, with Robot Man's Agreed. character. Yeah. Yeah. But it is... It's different in a fascinating way, I think. But we'll get to yeah. that. But so... What eventually gets me there is that last year, for whatever reason, I don't really remember why, I read a Polex novel, Unquenchable Fire, from 1988, mm-hmm. which won the Arthur C. Clarke Award the year after. It's like one of these fantasy novels that was acclaimed in its time, but no one ever really talks or reads about it anymore except for sci-fi fantasy diehards. I'm going to have to read that now because like, I, I really have enjoyed yeah. most of her run on Like I think uh, Charlie Jane Anders wrote about it in Tor and praised it. Um, there are people who enjoyed that book or at least say oh this is interesting so i thought i'd read it i really enjoyed unquenchable fire it's pretty inaccessible in a lot of ways it's like Mm kind of dated in the same way as that virtual comics are dated in terms Mm -hmm. of how it treats certain things but i think as someone who grew up because i i lived in the philippines i come from like a catholic family i guess in a way Uh, my relationship with religion is a bit messy like reading a book by someone who is very interested in this idea of religious transcendence and in the mm. way that like the world beyond affects our world, but is also like has these very strong ideas about like the difference between uh, it's like the person who wrote the comics, the comic, the comicosity piece mm. talks about this central theme of stagnancy versus growth. Like mm. that we live in this world where you can believe very strongly in something and have it define your life. But there's a difference between sort of remaining um, the same person in that world or changing and becoming something else. And this idea that for everyone, it's this necessity to grow and change that even if it's scary, like it's only when you come into contact with this outside Mm -hmm. thing and have like this sort of revelation in that way that you can live your life i guess Hmm. so i i read unquenchable fire i go like the way this book captures religious transcendence or like this idea of living in a world that's alive um where people in it despite the fact they know it's alive have sort of forgotten because it's been so long since they've been reminded 
that stuff was pretty interesting to me. And so I thought, well, um, I should check out the Pollock run. Also because recently, I believe it came out that Pollock was at the end of her life. She may have even... No, she's in... Because I was looking this up earlier today. Right. She's in hospice. Yes. she. I don't believe she's died yet. Yeah. Um, but it came, it came out that she was in a rough spot. Right. And they weren't sure how much longer she had to live. So I thought, while well, she's still around, uh, we should read the one long comic that she has her name on. And we should talk about it. Especially since people are saying it's like a very underrated series. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and one that, again, like you said, has been erased. Right. Like... And it's you look also, at any future Doom Patrol stuff, they always talk about Morrison's run. That's true. Despite the fact that there's so much interesting stuff in Pollock's run that, to be fair, there's not as much stuff there just because fewer comics are written. Right. But in terms of the development of the characters, there's so much they could pull on. And I think, to be fair, in the Doom Patrol TV series, they did actually draw a bit from later. But, you know, I mean, I can't even imagine, like, to imagine Dorothy's character without this run, I mean, I don't really know. Well, I feel Dorothy like this is kind of just there for most of Morrison's yeah. run. I don't think she gets really addressed. I mean, it's so so interesting that again, I want to kind of focus on Dorothy for a quick second, right? Um, so she, who is Dorothy first of all? Yes, so Dorothy is well, actually, kind of exactly what you would think. From it's Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, um, kind of as the foundation of the character. Because if you were to deconstruct elements mm. of the Doom Patrol robot, robot man is the Tin Man. Um, like you could oh, actually draw I didn't think about that. Yeah, you could draw a parallel to the Wizard of Oz. You know, uh, Calder is the Wizard of Oz. Like th- there is a take on the Doom Patrol, that it is the Wizard of Oz. Mm. So Grant Morrison obviously sees this and creates a character that is, I mean, she dresses. So I should say, first of all, Morrison did not actually create Dorothy. Oh, the, she predates yeah. Morrison's Yeah, Morrison, run? Dorothy, I think, appeared in an earlier issue. Well, the fascinating thing, I think that earlier run meant to kill Dorothy off. But then oh, I Morrison didn't know that. brought I her back I just assumed anyway. that he'd created her. So That they created her. Yes. Or sorry, they created her. Um well, how foolish of me not to look this up and just assume. No, that's um, fair. But, um, well, in any event, um, whoever had this idea, someone linked the fact that there is a Wizard of Oz, I think, parallel here. Because at least when she appears uh, first in Morrison's run, she's dressed, I think, exactly in the blue sort of, uh, yeah. you know, uh, look that, that, that Dorothy has in the right. Wizard of Oz. But in any event, uh, she is a young girl of very sort of... Uh, tween into teen uh, age it's left somewhat unclear but early enough that she's beginning to grow up into an adolescent and have yeah. the issues that adolescents have she has the face of a chimpanzee and right? she has the face of a chimpanzee so she although is... how people draw that sort of depends based on the author um, i guess it's funny because like the characters of the doom patrol are all pretty wired they're all pretty wild and i suppose it's richard cases art that sort of defines the characters for much of morrison's run right but then once once pollock takes over it gets a lot more i mean cases there in the beginning but then a bunch of other artists come in and it starts shaking up a little bit so it's interesting to see how those different characters look under the pens of different people Um, but so anyway please please continue right um and she has these psychic powers that effectively enable her to pull imaginative characters from her psyche whether from her conscious or subconscious and make her make them real in the world uh in a way that can be 
either under her control or outside of her control. Right. She has all these really freaky and powerful imaginary friends. You can call on at any time. It's true. Um, and so in a, in a sense, she's one of these sort of Deus Ex Machina characters that can really just do a lot, but also be somewhat uncontrollable, uncontrollable yeah. as a result. And you are correct. Um, she was created by Paul Cooperberg for the, the, the you know, 18 right. issues that preceded Morrison's run. Uh, apparently very late in that run in issue number 14 yeah. with Eric Larson and Jim Sanders III also credited with her creation. That's so yeah. funny. Like Dorothy's character, she's kind of like the child character, I guess. Yeah. She's also kind of a plot device. She's the one who like accidentally summons like the final villain of Morrison's run at the very end uh, because she like, you know, she's a kid. She makes a mistake and things go wildly out of control. Um, and then amazingly, she's kind of like the last surviving member of the doom patrol in a way at the very end of that run like yeah. she uh returns to the real world at the events of that comic and a lot of the first couple issues of pollock's run are just her trying to figure things out and what exactly she wants to do yeah. and she's the one who has the agency for most of it which is pretty fascinating she sort of switches all of a sudden from being the sort of kid character in the background who's constantly messing up and having me defended to being like the yeah. teenager who's having the like like get a bunch of crises of garbage identity. cases yeah. to work with each other because yeah. everyone else is too busted to really do anything. Yeah. Well, and it also feels okay. So not that I actually know that Morrison did not create her yeah. and that she was just there and he saddled with that character. It's very clear to me now that he just didn't know what to do. That with they her. didn't know. What Sorry. They didn't know what to do. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, they didn't know what to do with her and ergo, she's just, in the or I mean, background. you know, I think Morrison, well, I don't know why Morrison made the decisions they made. It could have been they said, "Well, we need another woman. We need another woman on the team, like a, a kid character. We could be cool. Let's That's take true. this person, bring yeah. them in." Um, um, but also, as I just looked Dorothy up on on Wikipedia, it confirms what I anecdotally thought was true, which is that right. she is indeed a reference to Dorothy Gale from The Wizard of Oz. Well, there you go. So yeah, it's true. Um, it just felt right because of the way she's dressed i was like it's clearly dorothy from yeah, yeah anyways and eventually so pollock does bring robot man back too do you want to talk about robot man at all uh yes well it's kind of hard can you imagine doom patrol without robot man i, th I guess robot man's been there from been there from the beginning right I, yeah i think in in every incarnation of the doom patrol there's been a robot man so Ro robot man he's a big robot he used to be a race car driver who got in a terrible accident his name was Cl cliff Steele. right Very he is foreshadowing on the very first page of Morrison's run, it's yeah. uh, his collapsing body holding his brain, yeah. which has fallen out of his head. And that's how you know that Morrison's saying, okay, we're done with Doom Patrol being a standard superhero book. We're just going to just be really wild and avant-garde now. You're going to see people holding their brains when they're falling to pieces. That's, that's yeah. just how it goes. Well, that first arc was also called Crawling from the Wreckage. It, yeah, it's So true. it's a very literal. <laughs> and I know. feel like Cliff Steele, his character is like, kind of a very he feels like sort of a very marvel-y character to me like in that at that particular point like he's someone who has had this very traumatic thing happen to him he has these powers he's not happy about and has to rediscover his humanity in it's some true way. he's very grumpy all the time yeah. like kind of it feels like in line with a character well, like the thing exactly right? i was about to say <laughs> yeah because he has that kind of feel to him like he's always talking about how he's misunderstood but then yeah. he like comes out even when people think he's not going to help, he like goes, no, I'll do the right thing after all. Always right? comes through. In, in or a, he'll protect yeah, people. Bitch. Like, I think the heart of Morrison's Doom Patrol run is this relationship between Morrison 
sorry, not between uh, Morrison, b- between well, uh, Cliff Steele yeah. and the character of uh, Crazy on. Jane. I was gonna get her real name because I have it written down. Kay Chalice, who's uh, yeah. Superhero name is Crazy Jane, I guess. Yeah. She's someone who has many different alternate personalities, and each personality has a superpower. So she is an existing system, I guess you could say. And I also don't, you know, and this is something that I will say is probably a good disclaimer for most of Morrison's run on the Doom Patrol, is that I think our understanding of even multiple personality disorder has changed in the intervening years, and I don't know how sensitive to that this run is there's a times. whole section of um, elizabeth sandifer's right up on the doom patrol it gets exactly into the moral quagmire yeah <laughs> that is what exactly morrison is doing with that character so but we may get to that yeah uh, i mean actually i should say here because crazy jane is not really a part of paul x run so i'll just get out of the way Correct. right crazy jane to me i love crazy jane when i read morrison's doom patrol originally i mean you really have to see that run as a sort of push and pull between robot man it's and crazy true. jane so I, I think that's a perfectly good that read. she's someone yeah. who is struggling with her condition and yet over time like she grows and changes she decides that she doesn't need to be normal she can just sort of be herself and how she even gets the last word like the very last issue of morrison's zoom patrol which to be fair i think is it's a high point it's my, one it's of a the huge best parts point, yeah. of the whole book yeah, yeah. It, it is crazy jane crazy jane gets the last word yeah i think that says a lot for how her character informs so much of the emotional thrust of the book right. that like cliff Steele, you want to sort of go oh if only she could like if only like i could protect her or something right right i mean in a way it's like but then she's like i got this yeah <laughs> and she's actually the the muscle really for most of the run i mean which in is a way funny. it's like it's like the moe impulse right yeah like morrison sets up this thing where like ah here's this cool girl that she has this like soft side. You want to protect her. And so much of that like informs that story. And I think it's really interesting to see how Pollock just sort of, she doesn't throw it in the trash can. Cause I should say Pollock loved the Doom Patrol. Uh, reading an interview with her in comics journal, so, she talks about how big of a fan she was of Morrison series as it was running. But Morrison did not want her to touch crazy Jane because ah, okay. she so, was saying so that is a thing. Then. Uh, okay. Jane is someone who was happy uh, she's off like in her own little world at the end. We sh- should not bring her back and cause her any more grief. So Pollock said that makes sense. We're going to just leave her where she is, but we'll bring back Cliff Steele because Steele will always be unhappy. So we might as well do something right. with him. And if you don't have Steele, you don't have the Doom Patrol, right? No. But no. I think it is interesting that Pollock doesn't do that. She When she does bring in the character of Kate, who is a very interesting character, and she builds a similar kind of relationship between Kate and Robot Man, it is not the same kind of relationship that Robot Man and Crazy no. Jane has. And, and I feel like that is maybe part of why people turn against the book a little bit because they can no longer sort of project themselves, say, ah, yes, I too could defend Crazy Jane. Instead, it's like, no, these two people sort of have an equal relationship where they both sort of... And they also grow because of each other. That's right. And yeah. particularly... And actually, that is probably one of my favorite elements of Pollock's run is actually... And it's a way in which I think actually Pollock's run is able to echo Morrison's run, but also grow beyond it yeah. in that relationship between uh, Cliff Steele and Kate because they both essentially have, tr- I mean, obviously represent issues of body dysmorphia right. in, in various ways. And the ways in which that conversation is enabled in the book is a tremendously ahead of its time. Yeah. And, and, and to kind of preface this, Kate is a trans woman. Oh, I wasn't even going to get there yet. We, um, I feel like you need to devote a whole section to Kate, honestly. Yeah. Um, but we will get there because Kate is definitely central to what, Right, Pollock's run is doing um, quickly. Other characters yes. in the Doom Patrol who are important. 
uh, besides Dorothy, Robot Man, and Crazy Jane, there is Rebus, right? Who is a non-binary character, at least like three, two people who were combined by this spirit from an earlier Doom Patrol and, run. And right? very quickly, and my goodness, this episode, you know, we were saying maybe we would record another episode today. Yeah. I have a feeling this will be a two-parter because we have so much to talk about. Oh, it's about. just because we spent so much time talking about Final Fantasy in the beginning. Uh, we also spent a lot of time talking about Vertigo. Oh, fair. So, okay. But, but so with, with respect to Rebus, really quickly, it is so fascinating to me to see Morrison attempt to tackle the issue of Rebus at a time when the language for non-binary uh, people just wasn't there. And it's also particularly in- interesting knowing what we know now about Graham Morrison, that yeah. they are genderqueer and non-binary. They identify as they, them. At the time, I mean, it's so awkward to see them try to refer to Rebus as it at points, then changes the language to S backslash he. So, yeah. you know, it's she, he. Um, and there just isn't, and I think uh, Pollock actually attempts to something a little bit different later on um, where you see um, H-I-R, her right neo pronouns right yeah i think is that like that particular thing i'm sorry neo pronouns or something yeah yeah Yeah. but but there's this sort of very yeah exactly very like early attempt to to tackle the you know non-binary pronouns uh you know verbiage and i mean i can't speak to that i can't speak to that stuff necessarily i mean i know that there are people doing writing on this stuff at the time like we know that pollock was a trans woman at that particular time that um doom patrol was coming out i believe and so there were, there were probably people who were having those discussions then and were figuring things out. I right. can't say like, oh, uh, these things exist, so these things don't exist. I'm not schooled in that. However, I think, you know, Rebus has yeah. a character. Um, going back to Tegan O'Neill's piece on the Doom Patrol on Morrison's run, she talks about how um, Rebus is sort of a fantasy character in a way. And that sort of opens that character up in a way where like they are, because they don't have to be specific, they can sort of be free in that way to sort of embody all kinds of different things. Like Rebus definitely Mm. gets a lot of the storylines from what I understand in that run that are like sort of the hardest to wrap your head around. They're the most like Morrison just doing full out alchemial kind of stuff. They're also a bit of a Deus Ex explainer in terms of there's some kind of knowledge that no one can possibly know right now, but Rebus got it. I've also seen folks make the argument that, Oh, like Rebus is positioned as this sort of, Again, like this divine magical figure, like ah, yes, of course, non-binary yeah. people are not magical. Are magical, but as we know, non-binary people are just normal people. So it's like you can say, right. but you know, like it was the time it was. I can't say, I can't necessarily speak to it. And but. that, and I'm kind of glad that you said that as succinctly as you have, because I think that's one of the biggest sort of failings of Morrison's run, where there are things that are, because Morrison's entire run on on the Doom Patrol is very much the weird. And, and I like, look at these cool, weird things, right? right. And like, it's crazy. A, Jane is sort of in there too. Right. Like, isn't it so amazing that someone has multiple personalities when it's like people right. are just people who have multiple personalities and they can, and they can be perfectly it. normal for it. And they don't have to be regarded as so bizarre or weird. Like a lot of the things that we would consider in Morrison's run to be the weird are things that we could look to nowadays and be like, well, that's perfectly normal. Why, why are these people weird just yeah. for x y or z label or, but or to identity. be fair i do know so. real non-binary people who really see themselves in rebus and love rebus so this stuff is precisely you and, know and again, stuff to people. And, and i again i don't think i think just the conversation has become more nuanced over time yeah. so it's fascinating I, i'm not saying that it's problematic or faulty or in any way but i think it has become more nuanced over time yeah. in the uh, same way that you have a character like danny the street who i think appears yeah. morrison's run for the first time which is like 
I guess like a drag queen or a queer person that's the street yeah, in the, our neighborhood. They refer to Danny uh, the street as a transvestite at yeah in, in the work. That's also a word that doesn't really get used much anymore. Yeah, Morrison, uh, I guess, gets into the stuff also and stuff like the Invisibles, which right. is sort of ahead of its time. And maybe like, you know, there are all kinds of other vertical comics too. Like famously, Sandman's A Game of You, which has a storyline with like one of the first trans characters in a vertical comic that kind of makes you want to punch Gaiman in the face, honestly, based on how he treats that character. I feel like there's this, for the most part, there's a kind of positivity in Doom Patrol, which is nice for like most of the characters there. Are like they sort of end in a nice place at the end of it. There's a sort of storybook. They end. do get taken through. Uh, well, except are for, they... um, shoot, what's his name? Is it Josh? Now I forget his oh, name. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, who gets just, just gets summarily shot by Calder. Uh, because he walks in on him at the end of the uh, uh, of the run. Oh boy! Uh, where where Calder explains that actually yeah. he was responsible. And then we for should also say Niles Calder, the guy in the wheelchair, yeah. the sort of brainiac, the oh, yeah, Professor yeah. X who runs the Doom Patrol. He's evil, Professor X. As we all know, as uh, well, Jay and Miles explain, yeah. the X Men have told us Professor X but, himself is a monster, right? I was so going to say that, make that snake real. has eaten its own tail already because <laughs> Professor X has definitely since then gone through the whole Niles, Niles Calder arc. It's ridiculous, yeah. right? Um, so Calder got there first. Is kind of more honest yeah. about it. I love when we get to Pollock's run. She's like, okay, so how do you? bring Pollock back to the team with everyone hating him. You just yeah. make him a head. He can't do anything to anyone. He just sits there and, and really drinks sad. chocolate milkshakes. That's just it's spill true. on his neck. It's so bad. And I love it. So, okay. Doom Patrol <laughs> comes out is a very influential run. It has a lot of hardcore fans. It ends on its own terms. It has an excellent ending where crazy Jane rejects normality. Normality. Yeah and is happy to be herself, goes off with Cliff Steele to live a happy life. On Danny, in, in Danny the world, because right. by that point, Danny grows into a whole world where everyone can be accepted for who they are. However, that did Which not last, because no. we start Pollock's run. Yeah. Everyone is gone, mostly. Um, Dorothy's still there. Yeah, Dorothy, Robot Man comes back. Dorothy rejects. Is, yeah. I think there's, there's so much self-hatred in Dorothy that she just rejects that world of acceptance, which is really... Right. And it Sad. is also still, I think it's it's that, but also is this idea like when you're a kid, you're not fully formed yet. Yeah. Maybe if you're older, the idea of a place without harm and without pain is really appealing to you. But I think because Dorothy still has so much more to learn, it makes a lot more sense to go That's somewhere true. where you can learn yeah. things. Yeah. And, you know, I thought that was pretty discover Morrison in the way yeah. that uh, they make Dorothy the one who goes, well, I still have things I have to do. And so yeah. Dorothy goes back. So I'll give Morrison that much credit. Yeah, yeah. But to be fair to Polak, she immediately positions Dorothy as someone we're following. Yeah. And she eventually brings other people back. Like eventually uh, Calder appears and he's ahead. Yeah. You have Robot Man who's there and I guess broke up with Crazy Jane. That sort of eventually becomes Which, unraveled over the course so of the story. I was, it was interesting to learn because I actually did not know that about Crazy Jane that, yeah. that Morrison wanted that sort of happy ending. It's a very her. Morrison thing to do also, um, I should say, to say, yeah. I'm going to make a character in the setting, don't touch them. And it's my character forever. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair. Early um, uh, early version of that, which came to bug a lot of later DC books. Didn't work so. out with Damien. Mm, <laughs> but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but so what I was trying to say with that is um, I feel like having just read for most of Pollock's and all of Morrison's run, right. It felt like, at least where I am in Pollock's run, that had it had more time to develop, 
that Crazy Jane might have come back. Mm. But what you're suggesting is that that was never going to happen. That was just off the it table. It could have changed. My understanding um, is that Morrison specifically said, uh, leave Jane alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would have been cool to see Jane come back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe, who knows? It's hard to say. Well, no, another character that never comes back is, uh, what's her name? Rita F- the the tall the yeah the, the I giant. think because in Morrison in Morrison's run she just sort of shows up does a thing and then flies off into space I think she showed up in the flashback in a flashback maybe but no it's really a it's her. a whole arc where she kind of is it has a metamorph metamorphosis into this uh very like redhead like you know perfect woman body oh, yeah. with like a eye on her stomach and an eye on her back and she's completely like transcended humanity and then eventually oh. at the end she's just like this is beneath me i go away here you go it's a very actually phoenix force ish uh yeah. sort of thing i mean you can again draw the perils well, back to the comics so here's the uh voice of future alex providing a little bit of context to a very confusing um moment in this podcast um who i referenced initially rita far aka elasti girl or elasti woman um, does not in fact appear during uh, this run of Doom Patrol at all, uh, which is to say in Paul Cooperberg, Grant Morrison, or Rachel Pollock's run. Um, in fact, uh, I am thinking of Rhea Jones, um, who is introduced, in fact, in Doom Patrol number four during Cooperberg's run and is an entirely different character, Rita, Rhea. I know they, they sound so similar and yet are completely different. I suppose so but anyway so you know it's, it's kind of tricky at the beginning of Pollock's run because it's like all of a sudden this team that we've come to really love right gets torn up like yep. we no longer have the robot man well, crazy Jane relationship to invest in we don't like Dorothy is the only one there robot man is like consciously sad and is breaking apart and is not really functioning anymore there's that and so it feels like a lot of the things you've sort of taken for granted have been ripped away it's funny so, because Polak is someone who, again, like I said, loved the Doom Patrol. She was coming to this as a fan. And so it's interesting that from the start, she's like, well. well I believe she stated that she specifically wanted to write uh, the Doom Patrol and only the yeah. Doom Patrol. She said, if I was ever going to write a comic yeah. at all, yeah. this would be the only one I'd be interested in. And yeah. um, in my research, I came across this sort of interesting apocryphal fact that apparently oh, yeah. she wrote in to the comic repeatedly under I heard that too yeah uh and and then she was was constantly saying let me write the (laughs) (laughs) apparently kids all you got to do is just write to a comic I mean she was also again she was again she was a published short story writer and novelist at the time so she was going places a sort of fun fact that also worked for Jeff Johns people have also dug up well uh, Jeff Johns is a whole other subject matter we have to do a podcast about him but Um, are we going to that's a whole other question uh, I I don't really care to honestly every time a Jeff Johns character had their arm cut off that could be a podcast you know there was a time when I was very high on Jeff Johns then then I kind of grew out of that anyway continuing Alex what were you going to say yes so I was going to go with this um, is so do you remember what the first arc of Pollock's run is called a sliding in the wreckage yes which is a callback to crawling uh, from the wreckage which was Morrison's first run. So I and in fact, like the villain, they're replacing people with pieces of paper, right? Which is, yeah. it feels so similar to the Scissor Man stuff. It does. Like the very first arc of Morrison's run, there's these things called the Scissor Man that cut people out and replace them with outlines. And, um, and at the start of Pollock's run, you have these mysterious beings that just replace people with pieces of paper and abduct yep. them, right? And in fact, yeah, it's not only that, but so you also get um, 
you know, Richard Case shows up for only for that run to kind of smooth over the right. transition. Um, you also get um, what's his face from the Metal Man, Magnus. Uh, what, I forget his full name. It's Magnus something. Um, he's the the inventor of the Metal Man. He shows right. up just for just for this arc to to kind of again echo. I think a lot of the the themes and characters in that crawling from the wreckage uh, arc in uh, Morrison's run where Magnus uh, talks with uh, robot man and convinces him to take um, crazy Jane under his wing. And in this variant, he's talking to Dorothy. So it's, Mm. again, it's kind of echoing a lot of the early Morrison Again, of that first issue, really, is just kind of going back and forth. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty um, daring, again, that she positions Dorothy right in the center from the very beginning. Yeah. But, again, like, as the story continues, I mean, I'll be completely honest. I feel like, for me, Pollock's run doesn't... It takes a couple issues to really click. I I don't know agree. whether, because Pollock hadn't, like, written many comics before, if she just needed to figure out what she was doing, or if she was just sort of finding her ground. Because I feel like at a certain point you suddenly get the feeling, oh yeah, Pollock is no longer just copying Morrison or like following in Morrison's footsteps. She's doing the sorts of stories that Pollock likes to do. And I know this because immediately the themes change to the sort of stuff you see in Unquenchable Fire. It's all stuff about divinity, about alchemy, about like these forces that exist beyond us in this constant battle between, again, um, like everything staying the same and everything constantly changing. So do you want to hear my pithy uh, sort of, comparison yeah, go for ahead. Morrison and Pollock's runs. Yeah. I think Morrison's run on Doom Patrol is more Twilight Zone and Pollock's run is more Adam's family. That's really interesting that you said the word you bring the word family into it. And that's 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 yeah. on purpose because okay, I think on. that's the critical difference. Because I don't think that in Morrison's run you really get that sort of element of family. Right. And that's a very critical difference in Pollock's run. I mean right off Pretty much right off the bat, after you get past the three-issue arc with Richard Case, you they, they, they get a home. Um, it, it gets sort of reshaped into this more sort of familial uh, setting where they live in this house out in the, you know, and it's not even a suburb. It's like kind of out in the boonies. Uh, and you get these characters introduced, George and Marion, who are right off the bat really weird but have a really sort of familial, like, banter and they really feel like uh you know um morticia adams and uh yeah you know what's his name i forget uh what's the guy's name i don't remember either uh gomez let's just gomez that's right let's keep going yeah um like they're they're kind of weird and down with it you know but like they don't they don't make a big stink about how they're weird they accept their weirdness for what it is and it's fine they're weirdly non-tortured right considering that the earlier doom patrol characters are very angsty it feels like like, oh, we're so different. What was me? And when you meet these two characters right. and they're like, no, we just accept the world yeah. is like, we don't necessarily fit in it, but that's fine. And yeah. right off the bat, I think that's where Pollock's run to me works better right. because there is this innate acceptance of of being different yeah. as normal. And that to me makes this so far and above, I think, one of a gentler read than, than Morrison's run, which is very hard to parse 
kind of what it wants to say about acceptance mm -hmm. because it's not really concerned with that. It feels more concerned with, with shocking, with being risque and yeah. throwing a lot of ideas at you. And to be fair, that. I think Morrison's run, I mean, based on what I've read, it is probably dated. I haven't gone back to it to read through it personally, but, but I'm to, willing to believe yeah, that there's stuff I suffered in it that doesn't hold from, up necessarily. Well, suffered is a strong word. I read all of it pro before right. this podcast. I read so much Doom Patrol before this podcast. I'm getting nightmares. I, I do <laughs> think there's something to be said for being willing to shock because not every, I mean, yeah. You know, not everything has to be comfortable. Like yeah. stuff yeah, can yeah, be yeah, comfortable. I agree, I agree. That's valuable. Stuff can also like be pushing people's boundaries. Like that's also right. cool too. Um, in fact, there's plenty of stuff in Pollux oh. Doom Patrol I think is pushing I was, boundaries. I was actually. gonna say I think there's moments in Pollux Run that can be very uncomfortable. For sure. Yeah. But there is a sense it's just it, yeah, just so, less self loathing at I, points. Yeah, I think really. it is pretty neat that we meet those two characters. Yeah. And there's the doll as well. Yeah. Or because uh, of the way that or the inner because, child. Yeah. Who's like a little ventriloquist, yeah. not a little ventriloquist doll, I mean. Yeah. And I a dummy. I see him and I go, Oh no, that must be the enemy. And it's sort of like teased oh. at first, maybe something suspicious mm -hmm. about it, but no, like it turns out Charlie's okay. Like they're like an extremely powerful, seemingly uh supernatural entity that can talk to other people and is hiding secrets, but yeah. is not necessarily malevolent. Like we see everything in this house has so has well, these secrets that are hidden but they're there's not also the sex spirits that's right there are sex spirits they're out there but they're not malevolent they're just sort of they're doing their thing yeah. and they come to accept them and it's fine i think that's really neat that you sort of these people come in this unfamiliar setting and the doom patrol go oh no like how can we trust anything here? especially cliff a robot man right is very suspicious but over oh, time absolutely he sort of comes to understand no like everyone here is just sort of keeping an eye out everything's fine yep. and he has to sort of get the stuffing beat out of him for him to learn a lesson because he's a robot man and well, he doesn't learn anything right away and also critically and i think transformatively for cliff uh he has to literally have a sort of shared body experience. i wasn't gonna get there yet like <laughs> we're gonna build up to that okay uh but well look i think that is like the critical the, is the pivotal moment for for him can i quickly say something about unquenchable fire no i mean i we, think we, we can it, also get there we we can we can bite our time we okay you, so that. you were talking about the family element and i think it's fascinating because in unquenchable fire there's a huge chunk of it actually the majority of it that's sort of like a take on suburban living it's about a woman who lives in this new york suburb like far away from everything important mm -hmm. that's happening like in this world these sort of instance of divine inspiration where the gods interfere with the world is happening everywhere and um there are like prophets sort of who carry these messages to regular people. But many of them, of course, are concentrated in the cities and people often live much further away. And so the main character is someone who lives in one of these sort of closed off communities far away from anything happening where nothing ever really happens. But she, in this really shocking event, like gets basically raped by a Holy Spirit that gives her oh, like a child that's, that's, that's going to be like the next prophet, yeah. I guess. And she's horribly traumatized by this. And of course, no one around her understands what she's going through because like they're so used to living these lives that aren't touched by stuff like that. But eventually she has the baby and like the experience. But it, again, it's not a story about plot. It's just a story about the experience of being in this space surrounded by people who have no interest in really expanding their horizons beyond what they've been told and having to inhabit this uncertainty of like knowing that there are things beyond you you can't fully understand. And in fact, you might never understand them. It'll be mm -hmm. the generation after you, like the thing that you are creating, like without your consent, that will sort of be that thing. Like she sort of 
fights with the question of mm. whether or not she should abort the baby and like there's this divine influence that's keeping her from like aborting the baby and she's like oh no like this is terrible having no influence over my own life right it's again really messy in the way like a lot of these early stories are messy but i think it does get at something about like like you said it's like sort of satirizing family life right this idea of like oh what is it like to live out in like a small neighborhood in new york right in the same way that doom patrol moves out to this kind of whole like just abandoned suburb i guess in a way right yeah. where no one ever goes and stumbles yeah. into this whole sort of and hidden yet, secret everyone there is very accepting of yeah. the Doom patrol being there which i think is chill that's cool yeah they're just um, sort of getting by there's this great scene um what are the name of the two the bandaged couple yeah uh, marion and george marion and george marion and george go I'm to sure. the city yeah. and there's this person who comes out who says something like oh i'm just you must be so brave to just be out here. Yeah, yeah. And just the, how it sort like, of captures that. How do you that, mean? Yeah. Like, why? Why would I have to The way to it be? captures that condescension, right? Mm. I mean, this is still stuff that feels very prescient today. Like, people are still going through yeah. that stuff, like, these days. But I, if I remember correctly, Marion, I think, turns it back on her. She does. Like, Actually, wouldn't it be brave for you to be out right. here? And, and she's like, oh, <laughs> shit, I can't believe it. Yeah. So the fact that Pollock was pulling that kind yeah. of thing, but in a way... Where I was like, oh yeah, it's still like trying to be accessible for regular comics readers, and yet, like, this is a kind of thing that would still kind of be ahead of its time now. I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, well, and actually, um, I just I was looking through my notes, and actually, I just remembered something that I completely forgot from oh, yeah. uh, Morrison's run that I wanted to remark on, and, and this is actually relevant because again, it comes back to, you know, you look at Marion and George and the sense of acceptance of who they are, and yeah, you know, things are played more, I think, seriously in some ways. Um, and this is, again, knowing more about Grant Morrison today and who they are uh, and what their own sort of, you know, uh, gender identity is, um, who, you know, I, you know, who knows? And I don't want to necessarily cast this as a bad thing, but there's a there's a one issue thing where Mala and Mr. Brain. Oh, yeah. Um, basically attempt um, to steal Cliff Steele's body and they're canonized as being gay but it's played as a bit of a joke yeah tegan o'neill's piece digs into this too she's like how can it be that doom patrol is revered as like this early masterpiece of queer comics yeah. and there's a there's a whole issue that makes a punchline out of the fact that two They're men gay. kiss yeah. and then they explode and it's right? just and, and i look not to suggest that you can't be irreverent about those yeah. things and again knowing more about Graham morrison nowadays it's like it's hard to be too harsh on it because it's like who am i to say that i mean right? to be i but, think um people who are more well-versed in this stuff can not, than us can definitely argue about right. these works and even about Pollock's work, honestly. Like, yeah, I think there oh, are probably absolutely. stuff in here, too. Uh, there's probably some racial Yeah, stuff for in sure. It that is and very unquenchable fire as well. That's in there, too. So, You're like, oh, what's going on? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you, get, if you don't ding them on the, on the gender stuff, you can ding them on the racism it's stuff. True. Dang it. <laughs> um, so we've... <sighs> yeah. Alex, I want to talk about yeah. more about the family. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I mean, I, 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 it, I'm glad that that echoed with you i mean right. right off the bat i mean so would you say that's a you know i think it's absolutely true so we have a dorothy is sort of the daughter yep. there's charlie who's like kind of their guardian i guess or like the doll yeah. or the pet yeah. in a way well you have uh, charlie is there at the beginning with the house like yeah. i think uh it's revealed later on that uh he pulls in marion and george uh right. like first and then gathers everyone else yeah you have marion and george who are kind of like the cool aunt and uncle. Yeah, like the cool aunt and yeah. uncle sort of. They sort of sub in first as parental like parental figures yeah. when Cliff Steele's like too 
incompetent to really do very much, but <laughs> yeah. eventually it feels like he sort of comes out of it and starts being there for Dorothy and they take more of a backseat. Yeah. You have... Um, well, Kate. Oh, we're going to get to Kate. Yeah. There's... Crap, what's his... There's Calder. Calder, Who yeah. I guess is like the grandfather who everyone hates, but he's sort of <laughs> sitting there in the background being it's, really annoying. Especially because of of his mobility issues, right? Yeah, because he's true. just ahead in on literally an ice tray, so... He's definitely the crotchety, like, grandpa up in the and attic. And to be fair, I think there are issues of this book that do a lot to humanize him. Like, there's a great issue that's set in his dreams where you really yeah. see, like, how much self-loathing he has for himself. Like, I think Pollock does a very good job. Again, because... It she, is definitely the most interesting Calder I've read yeah. in the past, like, like Because, because she's hours. a fan, she knows to dig into these people who you already liked earlier and finding something that, like, gets at the root of who they are and how they've changed, which yeah. is, like, you know... It's great superhero comics writing. It's taking like the field even given and finding something interesting to do with it, despite the fact you did come up with the pieces yourself. And then you have Kate, who is, I think, one of the two focus characters of this run, I think. Like Dorothy's number one. Uh, she's really interesting. And honestly, I feel like, again, Pollack should be credited as the one who figured out how to write Dorothy rather than Morrison. I think Pollack put Agreed. so much Agreed. just meat in the Dorothy's character to pick through. And and I will say, I think, because I, I was briefly looking a little bit into the uh, into the TV show. I have not seen it. Yeah. But I think it's easy to editorialize and, and give credit to Morrison for a lot of what we are considering now as the canonical Doom Patrol right. that might actually, that Pollock might deserve more credit for. Yeah. Like, I feel like Morrison so, to that end. tries, Morrison, I think, is the one who brings up the idea of administration as something fueling... Yeah. Dorothy's powers, but Pollock is the one that actually makes sense of it, I think, and does really well by it. So there's that. But then there's Kate, and Kate's really interesting. So Kate is sort of... I was surprised by... Okay, I'll just say, I was surprised by how long it takes for Kate to appear. I heard so much about her sort of being the defining character of this run and being the character that sort of is the one everyone always talks about. Like, wow, I can't believe, like, Doom Patrol, Pollock's run so ahead of its time. But it takes ages for her to appear. It's an issue 70. Yeah. And the first issue is 64. So it takes what? What is that? Like, like six, six issues? Right. But that's already like Seven. almost a fourth yeah, of the yeah. whole run over. Like it takes ages. But so she finally appears. Um, she's introduced wearing a button mm-hmm. saying, put mm-hmm. a transsexual lesbian on the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, which already tells you immediately. Oh, right yeah. Yep. Like she's a, tra- she's a trans woman. That's just happening. And she's introduced directly adjacent to this villain named Codpiece. <laughs> the dumbest I freaking villain in this. I should say is, uh, I guess, like an incel, like a very sad man oh, who 100%. really wants to have a girlfriend. <laughs> who but literally gets his member melted no one else, by the end of the issue. We, we haven't gone there yet either. Someone who like doesn't understand why doesn't anyone mm-hmm. like me. Like I keep trying to connect with people, but it just doesn't work out. And his reaction to that isn't, well, I should try again. He says, well, I'm going to like build myself a powerful superhero suit that has a giant member attached to it. Yeah. And it's called, he's called Codpiece. It's very funny. It's actually probably one of the most succinct criticisms of toxic masculinity, yeah. masculinity and villainy all in the she same really, sort of thing. <laughs> how many issues is that storyline? Is it just two? It's, it's just the one. It's one issue. It's, it's really efficient. Issue, she just kind of yeah, lays yeah. it out. She's like. She lays it out and then she like decapitates him yeah. metaphorically in such a short span of time. It's really incredible. Yeah, because then the very in in this omnibus that I um, where I read it, the very next issue actually is a, is a break. It's this Vertigo Jam one shot that kind of yeah. goes off to do a different sort of idea. I should say something very funny when I was uh, researching uh, Pollack's run. 
Uh, she did an interview with Comics Journal where she talks about what influenced Codpiece, which apparently Green Arrow. Did you know that? No. What? So she says that when Green <laughs> Arrow was running, people kept writing in about how like it's ridiculous that Arrow just has all of these long shafts that he's constantly shooting at people I mean, that's that have fair. like different yeah. sorts of ends. Very phallic, I suppose. Yeah. Like um and the the name of the of the issue is also the laughing game, which is oh yeah. I mean, it's very tongue in cheek, ultimately, I suppose. Which is that like a take on the crying game? Is that what it's supposed to be? Maybe, maybe I can see that. Yeah, but so you know, Codpiece has a big dick. He's like, "Wow, I have a giant penis now!" But then Kate melts it because her power is melting things, which I thought was just like a cool superhero thing. But I guess is actually related to alchemy. Apparently, well, that makes sense. It's yeah, I can just see that. like yeah. a formal alchemist. It's like because well, she can s- both make things liquid and quag. It was like yeah. Both sides of it. Like in Fullmetal Alchemist, the cool comic uh, from Japan, you have a villain named Scar. Or I guess he's more of an anti-hero, really. But he has like a hand that can dissolve things. And later on in the series, he gets a hand that can create things as well. And so Kate is like immediately positioned as this character links to alchemy, even though yeah. those links are not necessarily drawn out explicitly. It could have been that if Paul was allowed to continue, she could have drawn that more explicitly. But yeah. it is what it is. Um, and she can also do another one other thing, which is call upon like these like computer internet yeah she's spirits, really good at computers because i guess the is cliche weird. is that trans people are really good at computers <laughs> is it <laughs> i guess it's like you see a lot of famous trans coders based on what i've heard i guess, oh, I guess. Or like okay. a lot of programmers like if you're trying to pay for your meds and you're like okay i guess i'm gonna like, i guess i'll get a good at computers what else am i gonna I do guess. there's like uh, famous uh, composers uh famous electronic composers trans i guess there are people out there um but you know I think so. Kate's interesting for a bunch of reasons. First off, because she's a really early transgender character in a superhero comic. There were not necessarily very many of them, but also well, because and also very oh, yeah. well executed overall. Particularly, I mean, obviously, from it looks like uh, her own experience, um, but it just was kind of astonishing to me how relevant the conversation is today in twenty twenty three. I, I mean, mean, that's you know, probably put the a biggest transgender like, lesbian in the Supreme Court. It still hasn't happened. After yeah, all no, this still hasn't time. happened. But also, you look at all the conversations and you know across the country now with you know, oh no, the, the trans people are coming for us and whatnot, and bathroom rights, and oh no, they're taking I our mean, sports people away. People say in World War II they took the trans people off to um, yeah. the concentration camps. So things haven't changed since then, I suppose. No, no. Um, but it, people it just always look for minorities relevant. to persecute, and yeah. uh, trans people often come up. And non-binary people as well, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, um, I think the thing that stands out to me the most about Kate, besides the fact that she is who she is and that that's like handled in a pretty nonchalant way, like she is just kind of is a person who lives her life normally and is not like, oh, wow, a magical person with multiple yeah. personalities or a magical person who's non-binary. It's just this is a normal person who can melt things. And that's just how it is. But... The fact that she's sort of positioned, again, like you said, she's positioned in this role that Jane was in, um, where she's like the female lead well, who exists alongside Robot Man, except their relationship is not the same. And in fact, before yeah. Robot Man knows that she's trans, right. he has this line that actually flagged right off the bat, because right. I thought that that was how normal she is, is very important uh, because, again, as we were talking earlier, I think that's the distinguishing factor in Pollock's run where being different doesn't make you abnormal. And, you know, actually, so in that comic journal interview I mentioned where someone brings up, they're trying to dig in with her and figure out what the defining right. theme of his run is. And they bring up the stagnancy versus growth idea that comes up right. in this comicosity piece. And Pollock says, well, I guess that's true. But for me, it was more about 
uh, it's not weirdness versus normalcy. It's weirdness is normalcy. Right, precisely. Yeah, like, just like you right. said. It's that there's nothing s- right. strange about not fitting in the same box as anyone right. else. Like, um, everyone's a bit different. Yeah. yeah. And and Cliff himself is, is struggling with this because he can't quite understand why Kate is there to begin with. He's like, come on, she doesn't belong here. Okay, she's got power. But lots of people have power. She's so damn normal. She should be married off somewhere. Married and having babies. It's like, oh my God, Cliff, you are so uh, heteronormative. You know, Cliff's boomer tendencies, I think, were exhibited in Morrison's run as well. Like, I feel like this idea that Cliff has to sort of work through, like, he has these strong opinions that are sort of hard to take because he can be very annoying Mm -hmm. in that way. And paternalistic. Yeah, and paternalistic. (laughs) And, but there's this sense that it also sort of stemmed from his trauma and his inadequacy. And you do sort of, even in Morrison's run, see him work through that and come to sort of take people like Rebus as like someone who can exist. Oh my God. The number of times that he just cannot let go of the fact that Rebus is Rebus and no longer Larry. I mean, you also kind of take into consideration the current conversation around dead names. Right. And you just don't call someone by their dead name. I mean, it's just, again, the conversation just, wasn't there and i don't yeah. know that the, i mean to be fair i think pollock but... is touching on yeah. a lot of the stuff that was there but i think so again a lot of this i think does come back to cliff's inadequacy and i think it's fascinating yeah. to see the way that cliff and kate sort of contrast with each other yeah because kate is someone who has become much more used to dealing with this stuff because i guess they've lived this way for a long time and so for them like it's difficult for them but it's something they've learned to deal with. We, yeah. we see later that there's still things or that she's not completely happy about, like past difficulties that she'll get into, but she's like sort of come to terms with it. First someone like Cliff, who's still stuck, like, no, my penis was ripped off. I don't have a penis. How can I live my life? Like, how can I be a man if I don't have sex organs anymore? Right. right. But I think that, and actually this idea is coming into focus for me as I'm hearing you talk about this. I think for Cliff, the issue is, that part of him does like who he has become, but he is unable yeah. to reconcile that with what he has lost as something that is okay. So since you've mentioned the Morrison run, yeah. I, since I have not read it recently, I can't speak to this, but do you remember when I was researching it, I saw in the Morrison run, like the scene where Cliff goes into Jane's mental space and like yes. he says, I'm not a man because I'm a right. robot, so you can let me in here, right? Like, does that happen? That does happen. Can yeah. you like sort of because he's unmanned effectively by not having right. a penis, which whatever. I think in a way Pollock's run sort of pushes against that directly. Absolutely, because I feel like it, it what we matter. see, yeah, is that Cliff, I think, is a, a man in the way, or like he, I think, identifies because identifies. that's how he identifies. Yeah, and that like, is not critical, necessarily yes. traditionally, yeah. but I mean later on, as you've said earlier. Yep. Um, the Trassius Wars arc, which I think yep. is the moment where everything comes together. Absolutely. I had the exactly run. the same feeling on that. So. Trassius Wars, I would say, as much a masterpiece of early Vertigo as something like, um, crap, the book I mentioned earlier, the one by Peter Milligan. Uh, um, Shade the Changing Man? Not Shade the Changing Man, the one before um, that. Um, crap. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to look it up now. We can cut, we can cut this out. It's going to get snip, snip, snipped uh, like the Scissorman. Maybe I keep that in. I keep that Memento, but that's not it. That's Christopher Nolan. Enigma. That's Enigma. It. Okay. Just like Enigma. Um, it's like on that level, I think. Yeah. yeah. But um, so the fact that in the Tresius Wars, at some point, 
um, we see Kate and Cliff having to share the same body in order to yep. venture like into this world beyond our own world. And how um, we see Cliff does not like having breasts, like right. having to share the same body with Kate means he shares that flesh that Kate has. And right. he is unhappy about it. He's like, this is not me. Well, because I think right? there's there's a part of him that's resentful for the fact that he regains sort of a semblance of that part of yeah. what he had lost, but it's not what he had. I guess what I was going to uh, say is I think it's yeah. really, in that sense, revealing to compare that yeah. with Remorse and going. Because Remorse, and it was like, oh, wow. It turns out that Cliff, in a way, is genderless, and that gives him this ability to go somewhere right. that a gendered Cliff could not. But if you look where Pollock goes, is more like, actually, Cliff does know who he is in that way. Right. Like, if you dig down deep enough, you see that he well, has he's... not been removed. He is like a person with a distinct identity, and he will confirm, like, yes, I am a man. Like, I right. might not have the same organs I did, but get down to it. This is how I'm comfortable. Right. And, well, and that's there's really a, interesting. There's another element to that, actually, that occurs later during the yeah. uh, the Dorothy menstruation arc and kind of getting that right. sorted in terms of her own acceptance of her growth into a woman and what that means, where there's a sort of circle of women right. moment that occurs. And Kate is there and is like, so just so you guys know, I, you know, and they're like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and also stands in direct contrast to know? Neil Gaiman's Sandman run. Yeah, because that game of you story in Gaiman's in Gaiman's Sandman series, there is a trans character who appears and is rejected yep. by the witches in that setting, saying, "Nope, you're not a real woman, so you can't right. you can't do it." And and that is why I mean, it's moments like that where I'm like, right. "This was so far ahead of its time." It's true, and I mean, you know, Ga- Gaiman, to be fair, did base that character on a certain right. trans woman he knew, Caitlin Kiernan, who's an incredible science fiction horror fantasy horror writer definitely look her up if right. you haven't read her stuff she her short stories are great also drowning girl excellent novel masterpiece um but anyway so um the fact that pollock was doing that that she was like yeah actually like it, it's fine yeah um and and that's it like it doesn't it doesn't have to be rationalized across many panels or pages it's just it's fine or that to be i think the way that and this is also pulling from that comicosity piece as well yeah the way that I think the way that Sandman storyline ends is, oh, that character dies. And then it turns out that when she dies, her ghost is a woman and it's fine. Like, I guess it turned out she was a woman all along. But Pollux is like, actually, it's not really that. It doesn't matter. Like, whether you're like perfectly this or perfectly that, it's about what you identify as, I guess. And I think, again, it comes back to that that whole notion of being different is and should be considered normal. Yeah. And then Um, he gets to the fact that she was a political activist at the time. She was probably talking to people who were thinking and talking about the stuff. 24 7 with this we have reached the end of the first part of this podcast series focusing on rachel pollock's run on doom patrol admittedly this first part uh, we really spoke more about grand morrison's run but that is important to set up as we get into uh, really where pollock's run begins as we've sort of addressed here uh, to some extent and also furthermore where it'll go and how where it goes um is so relevant by contrast with Morrison's run because in a lot of ways it's quite different. So with that, thank you so much for joining us and we'll catch you next time.